If you obey all the rules, you miss all the fun. Katherine Hepburn Chapter 2 That summer, Dave Taylor was on a film shooting on stage at Warner Brothers in Burbank, about 35 minutes from Beverly Hills. He thought it would be a nice idea if I trotted the kids over to see him working. His love interest was an actress who co-starred in a series of romantic comedies with ambiguous endings. It was a late 70s, early 80s thing. The plot usually had to do with a dull, domineering husband, an empathetic lover, and a woman getting a sense of empowerment by rejecting them both. The children and I found Mr. Taylor, the empathetic lover, on New York Street, dressed in a Burberry raincoat, strolling alongside his co-star in similar attire as they huddled together under an umbrella as the rain towers showered down, a camera on dolly track followed after them, and a tightly coordinated knot of assistant directors and PAs sent groups of people by to splash in and out of frame in a fairly decent facsimile of a storm. The giant white scrims, stretched like sails above the set, couldn't entirely filter out the Southern California sun. I was noticing it smelled like dampened desert and sage. The kids were being unnaturally quiet, and that we weren't standing far from a parched range of hills when someone shouted, That's lunch! The rain towers stopped showering. Two middle-aged men collected umbrellas. Coats were shrugged off and handed to hovering wardrobe assistants. Then Dave Taylor joined us with his co-star. He had his hand in the small of her back. Jess, I want you to meet my kids, Isabel and Andrew. And this is Ms. Billy Price, who's taking time off her college studies to spend the summer with us. That was a pleasant way of putting it. Lunch took place in the executive dining room at the studio commissary. Dave Taylor let the kids gorge themselves on ice cream sundaes and spent his one free hour telling me all about Lauren Bacall and Humphrey Bogart. You see, Bacall was 19 when she first met Bogey, who was easily 40, on the set of To Have and Have Not. It was love at first sight. They were a perfect couple. Well, that's the nostalgic yarn my employer was spinning. He didn't mention that Bogart was married at the time they started filming to his third wife. I subsequently learned that Bogart and Mayo, and I don't know how to pronounce her last name, were known for their alcohol-fueled brawls resulting in mutual black eyes. The young Lauren Bacall must have seemed to the weary star like daffodils and Easter bunnies and smooth sailing, all tied up with a silken ribbon. Not only had Bacall attracted the attention of Bogart, but he was vying for her favor with their director, Howard Hawks, also married, also a brawler, also in his 40s. I have, over the years, developed several theories about the laws of attraction. Something having to do with men and young, fertile women with long hair. Then I started rousting the kids from their seats for their imminent departure. Dave stood up, looked me, the au pair of 19, in the eyes, chucked me on the chin, and said, Here's looking at you, kid. Instead of thinking here was a guy speeding towards a huge midlife crisis, looking to validate himself sexually by sleeping with a younger a much younger woman, who was by no means his social, intellectual, or experiential equal, my immediate thought was that I was glad I had packed my diaphragm. 
Shall we discuss diaphragms? Sorry, rhetorical question. We're going to. According to the student clinic in Cambridge, they were the birth control method of choice. They didn't tamper with your hormones. They were 98% effective if used as directed. As directed. That's where things got slippery. The damn thing was about the size of a screw on top of a large pickle jar. The flesh tone latex diaphragm was shaped like a shallow cup and the rim was spring-loaded. The cup was filled with a contraceptive cream, squeezed from a tube, that best resembled the marshmallow whip I was accustomed to spreading on peanut butter sandwiches. This spring-loaded concoction was then meant to be folded, inserted, and placed over the cervix. The thought caused me some distress. I couldn't tell you how many times it sprang out of my hand and landed in a sticky, fluffy mess on the bathroom floor. 98% effective if you didn't factor in operator error, impatience, and teen lust. Star wattage. At my age, it was hard to ignore. That night, after Isabel and Andrew were in bed, using the staff line in the kitchen, I called Polly at her employer's beach house in Malibu. Having been raised on the East Coast, I couldn't understand how people were allowed to build houses just above the high tide mark. Beaches were meant to be public, wide open, not crowded by damp, overpriced housing. Polly answered on the first ring. After some conversational meandering, I got to the point. I think my boss likes me. Gabrielle Taylor likes you? That's nice. No, I responded. Not Mrs. Taylor, Mr. Taylor. Uh, isn't he at work like 12 hours a day? What do you mean he likes you? I explained the field trip to the studio and the pointed references to Bogart and Bacall. I could hear Polly sucking in smoke from a smoldering cigarette. Okay, definitely not nice. That is sleazy. The last girl he liked got fired. He tried to like her into bed, and Mrs. Taylor fired her likable ass. You want to get fired? Frankly, I was more than a bit naive at the time, and I hadn't thought that far ahead. I made some noise into the phone to signify I was mulling over what she said. Listen to me. You will get fired. Don't let that tired pickup routine of his make a little sap from Swampscott out of you. Gloucester. Whatever. Gloucester. Just don't sleep with him, said Polly. You think he's really coming on to me? He, he doesn't want to sleep with me. I'm, uh, I, he, I did a quick calculation. He's 19 years older than I am. I'm only 10 years older than Andrew. Maybe he just likes being around young people. I was saying one thing and thinking another. I was thinking it was cool to have somebody handsome, rich, and famous cozying up to me. Right, said Polly. That's why the previous nanny lasted three weeks. Dave Taylor just loves young people. Ask Mrs. Taylor. I bet he's flirting. Don't you think actors flirt with everybody? Polly snorted into the phone. Either be smart, Billy, or start packing to go home. That man is a walking erection. I don't want to go home. I'm not ready to go home, I worried out loud. Be smart, Billy, Polly restated. 
Okay, it's, it's probably nothing anyway, I said. Yep, nothing. That's what you called me. Just a whole lot of nothing. I was hunched on a stool at the breakfast bar, playing with the bouncy, rubberized cord of the telephone, listening to Polly with the earpiece clutched to my head. When the kitchen door swung open, and in walked Dave Taylor and Irvin Afay Johnson Jr., commonly known as Magic. I didn't mean to, but I squealed into the phone. Polly, I gotta go. See you tomorrow. Harvard had a basketball team, but they were a joke. Here was the point guard from Michigan State, just two years older than I was, already a college legend and now playing for the Lakers. Please note my response. Magic was about seven feet tall, had muscles for days, and the most beautiful smile imaginable. He looked like a cherub on growth hormones. Dave Taylor was surveying me from a much lesser height with a funny cockeyed smile. In comparison, he looked like a dwarf. Billy, magic, magic, Billy. He introduced us. My hand disappeared into magic's. Hi, Billy. Hi, magic. I felt warm all over. I glanced over at my boss and felt something. Something odd. It was pity. Yes, hard to feel sorry for a movie star. And on that surging wave of magic's charisma, I got dumped out. Water stinging up my nose chin scraping on sand, right on Dave Taylor's sorry little beach. It was my first encounter with sympathy as an aphrodisiac. It's not common knowledge, but most leading men are short. They have big heads in relation to their slight bodies, large symmetrical features, especially eyes, and straight, expertly manscaped brows. They photograph well. The camera loves them, and in order to make them appear tall in the frame, they often emote perched up on a flat wooden platform called an apple box, a leftover term from the silent era, when California's main export was produce, and anything on hand, like a shipping crate, was incorporated as a movie tool. Dave Taylor was listed as 5 feet 10 inches tall on the pages of measurements his agents distributed to costume designers, but in reality he was more like 5'6". Uh, that's not to say most leading men aren't riveting, but being blown up to movie screen size usually does more than increase the world's perception of your stature. It usually has strange effects on your ego as well. Okay, let's not generalize. Dave Taylor, specifically, was strangely influenced by his screen presence. He constantly had to prove he deserved his fame, and he was an untidy mix of bombast and self-doubt. For a brief period, when he and I were separated, he continued to find comfort in the adoring eyes of age-inappropriate women. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Where were we? Oh yeah, I was age-inappropriate. And for a girl who had gotten into an Ivy League university, maybe more than a little bit dense. Book smart, street stupid, according to Polly. Lots of guile and juvenile plans, but charming. You were really charming and disarming in the beginning, said Natalie. Pure heart, aspiring in spirit, a feckin' innocent if you ask me. But I think, deep down, very angry. Don't you think, Billy, we're all... 
ultimately driven by our anger was Darla's addition. Oh God, you are just, are, just a great gal. This from Jane. In retrospect, it's hard to find a pattern in these statements, but even with the qualifiers, there was a lot of love there. We sparked each other with the intensity of the inexperienced. As for me, I got people going. It didn't hurt that I was 19, and at that age, who isn't stunning to look at? Okay, moving on. We'll dispense with the graphic depictions of the wooing and groping and dissembling Dave and I engaged in before he was divorced and I became his second wife. It was all pretty typical. At the time, I thought nothing like this had ever happened before to anybody. Remember, I was a teenager, immature and almost oblivious to the wholesale emotional destruction I was inflicting on Gabrielle Taylor and her children. A decade later, it embarrassed me to remember saying, but I absolutely did. As long as we love each other, everything will be fine. As Darla and Jane nodded their support, Polly pressed her lips together to keep from saying something unkind, and Natalie just shook her head and left our palpably earnest, palpably sincere company. As Natalie later told me, she remembered vividly when her own father had cheated on her mother for a woman in her early 20s, the product of that deceit being her young sister, the one she was fiercely protective of. She considered that between her father who she perceived of as being married to his career, and Anne's mother, who she dismissed out of hand. She was interceding with wolves on behalf of her only sibling. As she walked out of the park, Natalie Brown turned back for a moment and called out, at least he's marrying you, and then she was gone. For almost 10 years, she was gone. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed the story, please tell a friend.